Thank you for joining us today. We'll begin our study of 2 Corinthians. We'll be discussing how persecution and trials confirms our faith. So if you'll open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll begin our lesson. So why don't we begin in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this group and the opportunity to gather together and study your word. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit to help guide us in this discussion and teach us more about what you would reveal to us today through our study. We'd ask that you speak through me, speak through those who speak up today so we can all learn from one another and let it be your word, not our words. Don't let any of us confuse anybody or lead anyone astray. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting a new study today. We're going to be studying 2 Corinthians. I thought we'd go there next since we did 1 Corinthians just a while back before we went over and studied the Gospel of Matthew. So I thought we'd kind of wrap up Corinthians in the coming weeks. So let me give you a little background on Corinthians. Some of this you'll remember I discussed when we studied 1 Corinthians, but not everybody was here then. 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to the church in Corinth in about 55 AD, plus or minus. So we're looking at 20 to 25 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You'll recall that Paul founded the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey in probably AD 49. And we can read about that in Acts 18. What is Corinth? So Corinth is what's now Greece. It's west of Athens. It was very Roman at the time. It had a reputation for sexual immorality. It was on a very important trade route. But just like any other major city, it had lots of corruption. The church that was planted there by Paul, they began to even have disagreements on things like marriage, divorce, food. They just began to flounder, and they began to divide within the church into various groups because of these various issues. And so Paul was trying to address some of those issues, and he had first written them what's really the first letter to the Corinthians. It was lost. If you're wondering, well, where does that come from? If you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, It refers to the first letter that's no longer there. Let me just go over there and I'll read that to you so you have that. He says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So that's the reference to the first letter that was lost. So 1 Corinthians is really the second letter. Okay, And then after he wrote the second letter, which is 1 Corinthians, it really didn't eliminate all the problems that the church in Corinth was having. It resolved some of them, but there was still a lot of opposition to Paul, and many of his critics continued to speak out against him within the church in Corinth. There was lots of division, and Paul's detractors were questioning his authority as an apostle. They were actually claiming that they had equal authority with Paul's and that he really wasn't an apostle. So when Paul heard about these continuing problems, at that point he was in Ephesus during his prolonged stay there during his third missionary journey. He then made a brief visit to Corinth, but his efforts to resolve those problems were not successful. So he returned back to Ephesus, and then he wrote his third letter. He wanted to try to address these issues, and he sent what is sometimes referred to as the severe letter from Ephesus, That letter was also lost, just so you know. In that third letter, he directed it at this group that was opposed to him, 
he hoped to then receive a good report from Titus. Titus is who then delivered the letter to them, this third letter. But there was a lot of persecution there in Ephesus, and so Paul had to even leave Ephesus at that time earlier than he had anticipated, and he moved west into Macedonia. And that's where then Titus met with him and gave him a good report that a lot of the church had responded to Paul's directives and the church had made some progress and disciplined some of these troublemakers. But there were some in the congregation who still refused to acknowledge Paul's authority as an apostle. While Paul was pleased that the majority of people had repented and had gotten their theology back correct, he still had concern over this minority group that was unrepentant. And that led him to then write 2 Corinthians, which again is the fourth letter. So that could be a little confusing. He also wanted to try to refute some of the charges that people were bringing at him. His critics were alleging that he was untrustworthy. He had changed his travel plans. We'll read about that today. And he didn't come to see them when he had said that he would. And so they were trying to say, see, Paul's untrustworthy. He's just doing his own thing. He only does what he wants to do to bring glory to himself. And so this second letter, well, fourth letter, but 2 Corinthians, gives him an opportunity to clarify the nature of what ministry is all about. And he was just going where God directed him to go. So he writes this second epistle to the Corinthians from Macedonia. It was probably in the fall or winter, somewhere again between 55 and 57 A.D., during his third missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 18.23 to 21.16. When we were over in Acts, we were studying that third missionary journey, you may remember. So he's writing this about three months after he left Ephesus. So that's where we are in the grand narrative. So let's begin over in 2 Corinthians verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, He always starts his letters with who's writing this. So Paul is writing this, and he makes it very clear he is an apostle. He's an apostle not because he wants to be an apostle, but because he was called by the will of God to be an apostle. And Timothy, our brother, so Timothy is helping him write this. That was fairly typical. Paul had an eyesight problem. That may have been why he usually got some help writing these letters. Timothy was like a son to Paul. Timothy was with Paul when he founded the church in Corinth. You can look at that in Acts 18, verse 5. So Timothy is with him, and they're writing this to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Achaia is western Greece, and Corinth was the capital. And it's interesting when he says with all the saints, some people stumble over the word saints when they read in the New Testament. And when Paul uses saints, he's talking about all believers. If you'll just flip over to Romans, go over to the left and go to Romans 1.7. I'll go over there real quick because that'll clarify that for you. 1.7, he says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, it's all people who are believers, they're called as saints. So whenever Paul uses saints, he's talking about all believers. It's not some special saint that is higher than anybody else. It's believers. Verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So it's God's grace that we have our faith, and that should give us peace. The fact that we have our faith, we should have tremendous peace in our heart, no matter what comes our way. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Okay, let me unpack this a little bit. This is really important. First of all, he's saying God, who is so rich in mercy, he gave us his son to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins. It's a gift that he's given us because God has so much mercy. Jesus is God. He's equal with God the Father, but he submitted to the Father. And when we are afflicted, we should have tremendous comfort even in that affliction because we know that we have God with us. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. And we can actually comfort others because God has comforted us. So when we're going through really difficult situations, people look at us, particularly if they know we're Christians, and they want to see how do we handle this. And when we're at peace, even through our afflictions, that's testimony. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit is living within us. That's a witness to others that we can have tremendous peace even when we're afflicted. And keep in mind, Paul is under tremendous attack right now as he's writing this. These false teachers in Corinth, they want to say he's a fraud and he's a false teacher. And Paul's writing this letter not only to defend himself against their lies, but he also wants them to see that even with all these attacks, he's very comfortable. He's doing God's work. He's doing what God called him to do. And he's not going to let these personal attacks against him take him off of his mission of what God wants him to do. He's going to continue to minister to other people, even in the face of these attacks that people are bringing against him. And he's going to show that he's at total peace. These false teachers were also teaching things like, yeah, you got to believe in Christ, but you also have to have works. And some of them were teaching, yeah, you've got to have Christ, but you also have to abide by all these Jewish rituals and traditions. And we talked about that before. So some of that was going on all in the background. And Paul's trying to stay very consistent with what he's teaching in terms of theology and his ministry. Verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers in the sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. So he's saying, look, they were all being persecuted, particularly those who were aligning with Paul in terms of what he was teaching in his ministry. And they were all being persecuted for their faith. Yet Paul's saying that we're all going through persecution, but he's happy to go through that persecution because the result of that is it's leading others to become saved. And that's really important. When you think about when you're going through a difficult time, just the way you handle it, God may be using that terrible situation in a way to attract others to faith when they see how you handle your own trials and your own difficulties. When you can be at peace and not rebel against God because of it, 
but be at total peace and just say, I trust God. I don't get it, but you know, I know God's got this and I trust God. Verse eight, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. So it's not clear what this affliction is. Christians were in great danger throughout Asia Minor, which is Turkey. Paul doesn't give details here. It probably took place in Ephesus, which was the chief city of Asia before he went to Macedonia, and probably after he wrote 1 Corinthians because he didn't mention this terrible affliction in that letter. But the Corinthians, they're probably aware of this tremendous affliction, but maybe not clear on how God worked within that affliction. You can go over to Acts 19. I'll just refer you there if you want to look at it. Acts 19, verses 23 through 41. I don't think that's the affliction that he's talking about, but it does talk about some of the affliction that Paul was enduring as he traveled around in his ministry. So you might want to take a look at that. But we're not clear exactly what this affliction was, but it was severe because he feared for his life. Verse 9, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So Paul thought he was going to die for the sake of the gospel. God allows these trials to happen for lots of reasons. Sometimes he uses them to draw us closer to God because we see we're powerless. We've got to depend on him. Sometimes he uses them to bring others to faith when they see how we can face our trials and difficulties in a way that brings glory to God because we say, hey, we're at peace. This isn't fun going through this, but I know God's got this and I'm at peace with it. That's what Paul's saying. He uses these to show us that we can't depend on ourselves. Self-reliance, so much of that that we see in our culture today. Self-made man. There isn't such a thing as a self-made man. Everything we have was given to us by God. And so Paul's saying he's not depending on himself. He's trusting God. And whatever these afflictions are, he's not going to let it bring him down. And he's just going to keep doing his ministry and trust God. Let me pick back up with the end of verse 9. But in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. So these people are accusing Paul of being a false teacher, and they're trying to say he's doing all his ministry just for his own gain. And they were actually saying, well, the reason Paul is suffering and going through all this affliction is because God's wanting to punish him. That's what they were saying. Verse 11, you also joining in helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. So these prayers that everybody was praying about Paul's affliction, it helped Paul. You can go over to James chapter 5, verse 16, and it says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So our prayers, when we're praying to God, even though God's got control and it's all going to be in accordance with his plan, our prayers still have an impact. And we should pray for people when they're going through affliction. We should pray for ourselves. Verse 12, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of your conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. So let me unpack this a bit. 
he says, for our proud confidence. This isn't Paul being proud. This is not self-promoting or boasting. But Paul's saying he has confidence in God, that God's working in and through him. It's God working. It's not him. And that gives him tremendous confidence. He's proud of that confidence because it's evident that God is working through him. How is it evident? He says it's evident in his conscience. So our conscience will convict us. When we're not doing the right thing, the Holy Spirit's going to convict us through our conscience. And yet Paul's saying his conscience is clear. And in fact, it affirms that he is doing God's will and that what he's teaching in his theology He's not being a false teacher. He's teaching exactly what God wants him to teach. And his conscience is clear. And he's not teaching things like some of the others were in fleshly wisdom. You see, he describes it. He's not teaching things that are worldly and based in philosophy and the wisdom of the day. He's teaching the truth of God. And while they're going to accuse him, we'll read here in a minute, about being wishy-washy because he changed his travel plans, he was never wishy-washy on what he was teaching in terms of theology. He was always very consistent. And so let's continue on here. Verse 13, For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. So he's saying what he taught and wrote down, he always wrote in a way that they could understand. He wasn't trying to deceive them or he had no hidden agenda. And he wanted to see them continue to grow in their faith through this sanctification process so that they would be made complete when Jesus Christ returns in his second coming that Paul wanted to be able to boast to Christ, not in himself, but to say, look at these great Corinthians, how faithful they have been, and Christ would be very proud of them upon his return. But his conscience was clear that he wasn't deceiving anyone and that everything he was teaching was the word of God and that it was the Lord working in and through him. Verse 15, And in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Okay, so now he's going to address, they were accusing him, as I mentioned, of being wishy-washy and a flake because he promised that he was going to come. And in fact, he had intended to come and see them twice. That's what he's talking about, twice receive a blessing. But God changed his plans. He's going to say, look, yeah, that was my intention to come see you, but don't call me a false prophet just because I didn't come see you when I said I was going to come because God sent me somewhere else. Let me show you where he's referring. If you'll hold your place here, go to 1 Corinthians 16. Just go back over to the left, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5 through 7. He says, but I shall come to you, this is in his previous letter, but I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. So see, even when he told him he was coming, he's saying, this is my plan. This is what I plan to do. 
but it's not about my plan. It's about what God wills. So even when he told them he was coming, he said, but still subject to where God sends me. And that's what he's trying to explain here. His detractors were trying to say, Paul's so wishy-washy. See, he doesn't really care about you. He told you he was going to come, then he didn't come. So let's see how Paul defends himself on this charge. Verse 17. I'm back over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes and no, and no. No at the same time. So what he's referring here, I think, if you go over to Matthew 5:37, where it says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And what he's saying is, look, my theology, I'm consistent on that. I'm not wishy-washy. I'm not vacillating. I'm not dishonest. But in terms of my plans, I make my plans. I still plan. We should all plan. But we should also always in our plans say, but your will be done. And whatever God directs us to do, that's what we're to do. And that's not being wishy-washy. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. So he's saying he's not wishy-washy on what he teaches them. He's not misleading them in theology. And he really wasn't misleading them about his plans. He said that was his intention, but he wanted to do God's will. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Salvanus, or your version may say Silas, it's the same person. He was a prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. And Timothy was not yes and no, but is yes in him. So God's truth is consistent. It never changes. Paul hasn't changed what he's taught in terms of his ministry. Paul's saying he's full of integrity. He's saying just look at his preaching. Look at his miracles that he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's always served them with integrity. He has never vacillated on God's truth. And he's never vacillated on what he taught them. Verse 20, for as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. So Christ is working through them. Verse 21, now he's going to make four points here. He who, one, establishes us with you in Christ, and two, anointed us in God, and who, three, sealed us, and four, gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So let me unpack this a little bit. So he's saying God established them. Christ is working through them, and he established all of them together in Christ. So they are all in union with Christ through their faith. And then they were anointed by God. That means they were commissioned for service, anointed by the giving of the Holy Spirit to indwell in them and empower them for ministry. He's done the same to us. We've received the Holy Spirit as Christians, and we've been anointed for whatever ministry God has us in, whether it's ministry in our business, in our jobs, with our families. We all have some kind of ministry. We have a reason God left us here when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, why not just be zapped up to heaven? Why are we still here? It's important that you discern what that ministry is that God is calling you to. And then in verse 22, the third point, he sealed us. So a seal, that's a mark. That's God's marking and calling us out, saying that we're his own. He has marked us. He has sealed us. We are part of his family. 
And then four, he gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So that's a deposit. That's a deposit of our eternal life with Christ. We can be assured of our salvation. He gave us the Holy Spirit as this down payment. And so we should be encouraged when we see the Holy Spirit at work in and through us, doing things that we couldn't do on our own. It's amazing to me, for instance, even when I go back and I'm editing some of these lessons, I go, where did that come from? That wasn't even in my notes. It's clear the Holy Spirit is working through all of us. It's very encouraging to me when I see that or when I'm witnessing with somebody or sharing my faith and somebody will have a question and it's like all of a sudden just the right verse pops into my head of what I need to share with them. Well, where did that come from? It's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. That should give us all confidence that Paul is talking about. Verse 23, But I call God as a witness to my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. He's saying that another reason that he delayed in coming there is he knew he was going to have to confront and rebuke these folks again. And that was maybe another reason he didn't come. Verse 24, Not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. So he was proud that many of them were still committed to Christ. Paul deeply cared about all of them. While Paul corrected them, he was doing it to help them and to bring them joy and to help them remain committed to Christ. And so as I just summarize what we've read here, a couple of things. One, God does have a plan for each of us. He has a ministry for each of us. And you may not have thought about it that way before. Throughout my 40-year career, I always viewed God had placed me in business. That was my ministry. I'm not going to tell you I was good at it all the time. But where has God placed you? What ministry has he given you? And how are you responding to that call? And the second thing is we're all going to have to go through suffering. There's nobody that's immune. If you haven't had any terrible trials, you're going to have them. And my guess is probably everybody listening in, everyone here has had something that's happened in their life. And in fact, I've been counseling. I've had several really dear friends lose their spouses here just in the last couple of weeks. And I've been working with each of them. And one thing that I've been sharing with them, and I feel called to pass this on. There may be somebody really suffering that's listening in today. When we go through really difficult times and losing a spouse, I haven't been through that. I mean, I went through a pretty terrible thing with my daughter, but I haven't lost a spouse. I can't imagine how difficult that might be. And yet our time here on earth is brief and eternity is a long time. Getting it right on this side is so important so that you can be assured of your faith in eternal life and forgiveness of your sins. And it caused me to just think back. Remember when we were studying the parables back in Matthew 13? If you want, just flip back over there real quick. Let me show you something. Matthew 13. Go back over to the left. Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament. Matthew 13, and you remember we studied these parables. Let me jump in here at verse 3. And this is Jesus. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, so here he's going to give this parable of the sower. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed some seeds, some fell beside the road, and the birds came and devoured them, and others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth in soil. 
But when the sun had arisen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So we see the seed is sown, and the sower is God. And what's sown out there is really the word. And what we see is there's three bad soils, and we then see, I'm going to show you what happens to those three, although I'm just going to look at one. We discuss that. If you're interested in the whole thing, go back and listen to the recording on Matthew 13. The one I want to focus on today is the second one, and that's the one that fell upon the rocky places that did not have much soil, okay? And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil, but when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. So let's see how Jesus explains that. Now skip ahead to verse 20. Jesus is going to explain what he meant by that. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So initially there's this favorable response, maybe because of the circumstances. In any event, it's not true faith. There's this infatuation. There's an interest It's like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, I'm interested in that. But it never grows. It never really grows. And so you see what happens. Verse 21, he has no firm root in himself. It's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And so one thing that has really gotten my attention with these two friends of mine is their tremendous faith in God that they've both lost spouses, one a husband, one a wife, fairly recently, one from cancer, one from serious lung disease, but they died at an early age. And yet their faith, the surviving spouse's faith, is so evident. It's like, this is tough, but I trust God. I know my spouse has gone to heaven and I'm going to join them in the future. And their faith is so clear, and I've tried to encourage them by pointing this out. How many people do we know that when difficulties come or you lose a loved one, that you go, if God's going to take my loved one, I don't want that God. That can't be a loving God. And they fall away. And this is an example of someone who didn't have saving faith. One of the ways I've tried to encourage them is that, you know, the whole way you're responding to this should be very encouraging to you. Because this is evidence of the Holy Spirit helping you through this. You are not falling away. You're not angry at God. You're trusting God in this. And that is such tremendous evidence that you do have faith. You have saving faith. And you have the Holy Spirit living within you to help you through this. So if there's anyone on this call today that's going through that, you know, when I went through mine, I was angry at God when what happened with Lindley, but I didn't lose my faith. I never lost my faith, and I continued to pray that he was capable of healing my daughter. And eventually, he used it in a very powerful way to teach me about empathy and about caring for others. And so God can use our trials in a really positive, positive way. One of those, when we go through it, is to draw us closer to God Another is to be a witness to others when they see our faith and the peace that we have in the face of difficulties. And the third thing is it can be very encouraging to us when we see, even when we go through trials, that we don't pull away from God, that the Holy Spirit is right there with us to help us through. So let me open it up now for any questions or comments that you might have.
Larry, it appears to me that that one portion of the parable, that it was just an acceptance of the head, a temporary acceptance in their head, that, oh, that sounds good, that would be neat. But it wasn't a permanent acceptance in the heart. That's just kind of how that settles with me. That is correct, because I think the Bible's clear that once you have saving faith, you can't lose that saving faith. And this is an example of someone who didn't have that saving faith. It was more what I like to refer to as just infatuation. It was like, hmm, that sounds interesting. Yeah, everybody seems to be going that way. I want to be with the crowd, but didn't ever really have it in their heart. Very good way to put that. In the first seven verses, the word comfort and sufferings appear frequently. I mean, sufferings five times, comfort eight times. It's clearly intended to focus on the fact that there are sufferings and that comfort, I guess, is a cure for those sufferings or something to understand. Well, I think what he's saying is that we're comforted even in our affliction because we know God is with us and we're comforted by God. And when others see that we can handle these afflictions and be at peace and be comforted by God, that can serve as a comfort to others. And we can help others when they're going through their afflictions to help them see that it's pain. I'm not saying we're not going to have pain. We're going to have pain. We're going to have grief when we lose a loved one. You're going to have that. But there's also a peace that can come upon you. You can have both. You can have grief, and yet you can also be comforted knowing that God is in control. And that can serve as a very positive witness to others and help bring them comfort. Think of our own circumstances when we're going through it. Do we just get in a bad mood and say, this isn't fair? And by the way, I've done that, so I'm not telling you I've got this mastered. Paul was very consistent. It didn't matter if he was in jail. It didn't matter what he was going through. He was at peace because he knew ultimately God was in control and he was doing what God wanted him to do. And it's like, okay, God, I might not understand this, but if this is what you want me to go through, let's go. What a model for all of us. And look, I don't have this figured out, but Paul was just such a courageous model. And his faith, as he went through this terrible suffering and persecution, he kept a very positive attitude. You don't hear him complaining. This isn't fair. There's no scripture in here where Paul says, well, this isn't fair. I'm an apostle. Why am I in prison? Hey, Larry, I think this message is extremely timely because I think a lot of people, especially with COVID now, plans are changing. People aren't being able to meet. Families aren't able to meet. And to have this message of comfort at this stage is just a, a very timely one, I think. That's on my heart. I appreciate you saying that. That is so true. And I think this is timely when we are with our families And sometimes some of these family relationships can be a little strained. How can we show up when we're meeting with all of our family members in a way that does bring comfort to them? What are some things that we could do? Well, I think prayer would be a good start when you get together, making the focus on Christ. You know, I'll throw out something else. If any of our family members are going through a particularly difficult time right now, even if we don't get along with them, just showing them a little empathy telling them that you've been praying for them or asking them if you can pray for them or asking them how they're doing or how can you help them, that goes a long way and may even go towards helping restore the strained relationship that you have with them. Thank you for joining us today. 
I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this podcast and my weekly blog by sending a text to 56316, type Larry in the text box, and hit send. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.